Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Happy to be here today, and thanks for joining us. I've talked a lot about opiate addiction on this show, and for good reason. Despite all we know about some of the most common drugs prescribed for one of the most common ailments known to humankind, the medical establishment has been slow to change the way patients are treated. In fact, 2 million Americans are addicted to opiate painkillers. Every day in the U.S., 78 people die because of an opiate overdose. Treatment of addiction is not easy. There's usually only one way out, and that is through. Through withdrawals, through abstinence, through counseling, through treatment. It takes determination and guidance, which often comes in the form of institutional treatment centers or treatment programs. Unfortunately, treating addiction in a clinical setting comes with rules. Seldom will a facility allow addicts in treatment to consume another mind-altering drug as means of ending addiction to another drug. Patients are subjected to drug tests, and when they fail, they often lose their insurance benefits, which pay for their treatment. That's a vicious cycle. It's partly because the law's barring controlled substances on a federal level. Another thing we've talked a lot about on this show But it also boils down to perceptions about marijuana and the lack of awareness within the medical community. A number of studies have proven that cannabis is a good alternative therapy that not only addresses pain, it also helps to curb addiction and alleviate the suffering that comes with the withdrawals. But if you can't use it in treatment centers, where can patients go for help? That's the topic of today's show and something our guests know a lot about from practical experience. Before I bring them in, our medical expert, Dr. Brian Donner, has our Medical Marijuana Minute update. Well, thank you, Snowden. I have some pretty strong feelings, particularly with regard to the the opiates, and I I thought that was a real uh, appropriate intro. Um, as, As a practicing emergency physician, we see this literally every single day. I can't go through a shift where I do not see uh, an opiate overdose, um, whether it's heroin, some of uh, uh, oxycodone, any of the other opiates. But literally, it's it's a daily uh, occurrence, and it's it kills people. It really does, and we see it every day, and it kills young people. 
who had families, who have children. And it's it's absolutely devastating. And it's an epidemic in our country now. And there's there, there really hasn't been a good alternative. So I think that is one of the that that's one of the reasons that medical cannabis and medical marijuana, I think, should be so appealing to uh, to many physicians. This could potentially present an alternative to to a real danger uh, in our country. Many doctors now are, are feel that way and they understand and they're they're starting to try to do what what they can to help try to curb this epidemic. But there needs to be an alternative to, to treat a lot of these people as well. So that's the conundrum that, that we're in as a, as a medical community right now and I think as a country. Yeah, that the FDA, uh, former FDA director was saying really amounts to the number one epidemic in the United States lately. Absolutely. And and, and like I said, uh, I see this sort of on an everyday level. And when you see these things day in and day out, um, it really it really hits home. And, and one of the great things is that many doctors now are, are feel that way and they understand and they're they're starting to try to do what what they can to help try to curb this epidemic. But it can't uh, the, it's not just stop. There needs to be an alternative to, to treat a lot of these people as well. So that's that's sort of the conundrum that, that we're in as a, as a medical community right now. And I think as a country. Thank you for that, Dr. Donner. OK, let's get started. I'm really excited to introduce our guests. They are two dynamic women who parlayed their passion for alternative therapies and holistic care into their current partnership as owners of The Giving Tree. Lilac Mazer Power served as a sergeant in the Israeli Air Force and spearheaded the formation of the biochemical department at The Giving Tree. Under her leadership, the department implemented proprietary extraction method free of alcohols or hydrocarbons. She also oversees all employees and services. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Also, we have Dr. Gina Berman. She works the night shift in the emergency room trenches at a Phoenix area hospital for close to a decade. There, she treated trauma patients, drug seekers, and everything in between, including addiction patients or overdose patients. Frustrated by the pressure placed on her and her colleagues to administer highly addictive opiates to ease patients' pain levels, Dr. Berman hung up her stethoscope to explore her true passion, alternative therapies. I'm really happy that you're here today. Thank you. So I want to hear, first of all, the two of you came together out of this passion for treatment. (laughs) And... You've done an amazing job so far, it looks like, with The Giving Tree. Tell me a little bit about it. So, yeah, um, Gina and I have been partners for about five years now. We started The Giving Tree out of a concept of kind of a alternative therapy, seeing the patients that Gina was seeing in the hospital and kind of thinking, how can we get patients to try different therapies? It doesn't have to just be going to the ER for their answers. So we started working on that, and we had our business plan, but it really just did not make sense to do it. And then one day, Gina drives home from work and calls me, and she's like, I think I know how we're going to do this. I think I know how we're going to have funding to offer this to patients. And she's like, turn on the radio, and I turned on, and it was the proposition. I'm like, perfect. This is how we're going to do it. It's a not-for-profit program here, and this is how we're going to Pay for it. So um, that was Prop 203, correct? Prop 203. Back in 2010. 2010. 
Yes. Wow. So you've been together for quite a while. We are. And, and coming on the heels of being in the emergency room trenches, how was that transition for you? Well, it was moving from the medical industry into um, non-medical, which is very different uh, in terms of what my day-to-day responsibilities were, in terms of running a business, which I had never done. Um, so that was all very interesting. I learned a lot. And a lot of times people ask me, do I miss being in the emergency room? And <clears throat> there are a lot of things about the ER that I love. I was honored to be an ER doc for so long. But the patients that I felt kind of got rushed through or didn't have time in the emergency room were sometimes seen in the dispensary. And I had the other end of the spectrum of medical care where I wasn't looking at one particular issue that a patient might have. I was able to sit and that's my job. If I needed to sit there for two hours with a patient and their family to talk about, then, then I had the privilege at that point of being able to do that and really be a resource for the patient at that time. It was a lot of research on my end to learn about cannabis. I knew nothing about it aside from what I had seen in the ER and the very, very little that we learn in training. So uh, there was a lot of catching up that I had to do, and I found that the patient relationship was equally rewarding. It was just very different. Yeah, that's one thing that that we've talked a lot about uh, with Dr. Donner as well, is the fact that medical education does not include much about cannabis. It doesn't include much about, if anything at all, about the endocannabinoid system. So how long did it really take you as a scientist, as a doctor, to really get up to speed on, on cannabis and all of the incredible benefits for patients? I don't have enough hubris to say that I have. I'm still learning. So I do have a passion for the opiate-dependent patient, drawing from my experiences uh, in ER doc and then seeing patients in the dispensary who I felt like I had an option for, whereas in the emergency room I didn't. So I, I know probably the most about that aspect of how cannabis can be an effective medical tool. I know peripherally about a lot of other things that it is beneficial for, but I, I'm still learning every day. I have patients asking me questions, and I look it up. PubMed is probably always up on my desktop yeah. to be looking at uh, research uh, articles and informing patients and helping them out. So this is still a learning process, and we're getting on to year seven. So Yeah, it, it seems as though... Um, it, it could be a specialty field all on its own. Absolutely. With, you know, a couple of years of coursework and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm astonished every day. I mean, and I'm, I don't have a medical background at all. I've done tons of research. I've been writing about this since 2010. And it's, it's just astonishing to me every time I learn about a new condition that someone is finding relief and then go to look up, see if there's a study on it yet. And of course, you know, most of the time there's not, but often there are studies. Often I am able to find some studies and um, you mentioned pubmeds.org. I think that a lot of people would be surprised to find just how many there are, but you'd mentioned when we were talking that a lot of those are not um, human clinical studies. A lot of those are um, research and Uh, animal clinical studies? We have a lot of research on cannabis, the endocannabinoid system, the receptors, the effects that it has. 
in terms of on a cellular level um, and in terms of animal research, bench research. And then on the other side, we have a lot of subjective experiences from patients mm-hmm. um, from the beginning of written history. So the bridge is the clinical study, and that's really what we're missing. And that is a randomized, controlled, blinded trial looking at what the effects the actual plant has on actual human beings. And the challenges to that are all political. So um, I don't see those being surmountable at this point. Um, But that is really what we need to have, I think, to get the medical community to come on board is evidence-based practice. And we can't provide evidence if we can't do research. Yeah, chicken egg. And there's only so far bench research gets you, and there are a lot of eye rolls when you have a subjective research study. So having the randomization, having it blinded, having it be a legitimate publishable clinical trial is something that I think we all would really like to have. Yeah. And a lot of other countries have have done some clinical research that way. A lot of the the countries that have legalized at least medical marijuana. Um, Lilac, in the Israeli, you were in the Israeli Air Force. Were you still in Israel during a time when when they were starting to build their medical marijuana program there? Did you see any of the progress there? You know, Gina and I visited Israel last year, and a year and a half ago, and it was, it's amazing. I mean, in the 1960s, they were doing research there with cannabis. Right. But the legal program in Israel is about 10 years now. Um, and I left around the same time, but it was always open. It was always discussed, and it was always part of our cultures and understanding that there is benefit we just need to figure it out and we need to do more research and this is why it's great when we go there to see how you can actually work with academia with hospitals with doctors in in get that 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 communication with them to actually work on it instead of here you you call someone and and they're just not interested yeah that is interesting isn't it the the um, institutional pushback seems to be greater than even the governmental pushback because the governmental side of things have been sort of looking the other way within the states that, I mean, at least up until now, they've been, <laughs> they've been looking the yeah. other way. I don't know what's going to happen um, now. It seems that there's not as much of a cannabis-friendly Washington as there once was. We'll but- have to see, right? I mean, we have to see. I, I, keep, I keep very positive thoughts about this. I don't think there's going back. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's 29 states with legal access to cannabis. The patient population is just growing. There's more and more interest from big companies if it's, you know, for the capital portion of it or if it's research. I mean, doctors want to know too. They're, they are asking for it. There's just not a lot to offer. And research is done in other countries. So right. I think there's, it's not going back. I'm not, I'm not too concerned about it. Yeah, well, one would hope anyway. Yes, so, yeah, I'm, I'm that's trying all we to can stay do. Back. I mean, once you reach that critical mass, you know, once we got to more than 50% of the United States having some kind of medical marijuana program or even legalization Any in some states, legal, yeah, yeah it, it, it seems as though um, the laws are going to have to catch up with popular demand, you know, and especially in in states that are in the Midwest that haven't passed any medical marijuana laws and parents are reading about you know, their children who have, you know, autism or... Families other... are moving. Families are moving. And I, yeah. I would have to say I would move. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, what do you do when your child needs something and 
you know, this might help them. You, yeah. you pack and you go. Right. And we've, we've interviewed some moms, too, who have gone through that very thing and, and even so much as had Child Protective Services show up on their door for giving them CBD, which is crazy because CBD is legal in any state, but the states won't have you know that if they haven't you know, approved a program yet. It's very strange. But um, I want to get back to the issue of addiction because it is such a, a troublesome issue in our country. And the opiates have been so overly prescribed, and I think that they're starting to scale back on the Im- amounts that they're allowed to prescribe now. Certain, I, I'm not sure if it's a federal thing or, or a statewide regulation that's, that's um, reducing the number of prescriptions that are allowed by doctors. But, Dr. Berman, what do you think about this? And tell me a little bit about your philosophy on, on treating addiction now that you have the giving tree? Well, I'll start with the opiates versus cannabis question. So I think that what we found at the dispensary was that patients don't want to be prescribed the amount of opiates they're being prescribed. And some patients are a lot more open-minded about other avenues to treat their symptoms. And we would see those patients in the dispensary And they were using cannabis to get off of other drugs, including opiates. And so it was a very effective means of pain management for them in a a substance that is a lot less harmful than what they were being prescribed. So these are patients taking the initiative to provide a healthier lifestyle for themselves, to be able to function on a higher level, to have less of a chance of dying. Mm -hmm. And that's not hyperbolic. that's That's just the course of opiates. In terms of using opiates for addiction, um, or in in terms of using cannabis for opiate addiction, I think that the first frame is is what I just mentioned, which is allowing patients an opportunity to not get addicted in the first place. And I think that would ultimately be um, a, a real success if we could get the medical community to start with cannabis for um, mild to moderate pain specifically and not start with opiates because that's inappropriate. And so if they can realize or be convinced that that is a viable, safe alternative for patients, um, then hopefully we won't have the downstream problem that we're seeing. So then you have um, the second frame, which is patients who have been prescribed opiates who find that they are on too many of them. And there are not a lot of resources in the community for those patients to be humanely withdrawn from opiates Um, they either need to go cold turkey or they need to work with their prescribing physician who is not trained or equipped to deal with the problem. It is a lot of hand-holding and it's a lot of interaction with that patient um, in order to help them humanely get off of opiates. If the patient gets too far downstream, now they have to identify as an addict and go to rehab. And then rehab is stigmatizing them with not only what they're doing with their life, or where is this person there in rehab, right? Or they're given medications that are sometimes almost impossible to come off of themselves because they're opiate um, substitutes, if you will. Um, so these are methadone and suboxone or buprenorphine is the generic name. So those are often really hard to um, get off of themselves. So you find patients in this vortex of uh, lack of resources. Resources that are available are, are very stigmatizing and hard for patients to 
to reach the level to where they're going to identify as, as a person needing services, which means they have to identify as an addict. Right. And often they lose their job, too, for the time off to go to rehab. And if they can keep their job, then they still have an issue where they're probably going to be on a long-term opiate. And there are issues with that in the workplace, depending on what your job is. Mm -hmm. So if we can look upstream and say, look, let's provide a different alternative for these patients so that they're not getting on such a highly addictive substance. Or if we can say, look, okay, this person has been given opiates. Let's provide them an avenue to humanely withdraw. And cannabinoids are... um, make a lot of sense in terms of ameliorating the withdrawal symptoms. And so it makes a lot of sense to put somebody on a cannabinoid instead of another opioid to get them off of the opiates. It, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I understand the harm reduction part of, of uh, opiate substitution. But in terms of long-term and for some patients who may not need that kind of a level of substitution, we have another option. We just have to consider it. And so that's using cannabis. Um, in terms of farther down the line, when somebody is addicted and going through recovery and, ha- and has a more severe problem, there is a study, it's an animal study, but it showed that CBD could help um, with cue-induced cravings for uh, heroin withdrawal. So these are mice that were conditioned to use heroin, and then they were given CBD, and they um, when put in a situation that should stimulate them to crave or to want heroin and push the lever, they didn't. So that's an animal study. Could it potentially be helpful for humans? It's worth exploring. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the downside of using CBD versus using an opiate substitute or, frankly, nothing, then you know, usually the course of that for that patient is, is to die. I mean, when you get far, so far down the road of opiate addiction and you, let's say a patient's going through a recovery and then they have a craving and they relapse, well, that's often when a patient will overdose. And so we have something else that those patients can reach for, whether it's a, a THC or CBD or a combination of cannabinoids or the whole plant entourage. Um, that is something that could really at least even help the patient get to the next day. So it can be helpful all the way down the route. Yeah, and you mentioned about in, when, when patients are in a treatment system and they need to go regularly and prove that they're still clean and all of that. I've had a lot of people ask me this question, and I never know the answer to it. I'm going to ask you right now. Will CBD show up in someone's system as an alternate drug like THC obviously would if someone is getting a, a urine test or a blood test to test for a drug. The traditional drug test won't screen for THC. It looks for the inactive metabolite of THC. Okay. So it, it won't see CBD, sorry. CBD, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to know. They're, they're not metabolized into the same product. I see. Okay, so, so theoretically, someone who is in treatment could be using CBD. Yes. But the institution probably wouldn't allow it. Is that right, do you think? I don't think CBD is as much of a concern. First, you have to assume that they know the difference. Right. So if they even know the difference, if if the the concern is more of the psychoactive THC, then it would be CBD. I don't think CBD is really even on the radar. Yeah. But in terms of going through acute withdrawal, THC is very helpful because it runs in parallel with the receptors for opiates. So it has a lot of the same 
effects. It's not as strong as an opiate, but it has a lot of the same effects. So the withdrawal symptoms are, are lessened. Right. So at least in the first part of it, mm-hmm. that would make sense completely. Right. And then transitioning into, uh, into CBD makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, it, it seems as though this is why we're here, you know, we, right. because a lot of people just are not aware of that. And, yeah, and so, so having to overcome the stigma of being an addict and then also in places where it's not widely accepted, uh, where medical marijuana isn't widely accepted, then they have to overcome the stigma of going into that. How do you, how do you uh, advise patients who are going through that? They're in a tough position. Mm-hmm. But what patients at the point of receiving help for what either they see as a problem or an addiction are fighting for their lives. And it's, it would be nice for them to have the option to use whatever might help get them through. And so for us to look down on an option because it may have... Um, a really bad PR history mm-hmm. is not fair to those patients who really are fighting to live or fighting to get their life back or fighting to make their life better. And so I think for a lot of folks, when they're looking at what the alternative is, the stigmati- like the stigmatization of being a cannabis user is probably, I'm guessing, um, is probably a little bit of a lower concern. So you have a solution down the pike, I think, for patients. And if you can't talk about that exactly, then maybe just the philosophy behind what it is that, that you are about to do with this. Can you explain a little bit? I'm thinking about the blue mm-hmm. So there, there are two options that we're working on right now. One is a, and they work together. So one is a line of products that we'll be able to develop that will do exactly what we've spoken of today, is provide a resource for acute withdrawal. And then also a plan to get somebody from acute withdrawal into chronic withdrawal. I don't know if a lot of people know that that happens. And it's a much longer course. And then switching the um, product that they're using from a route of administration that I prefer, like a vape pen, um, that has very easily titratable, um, very easy for a patient to use, especially when they're in an acute situation, and then changing that to a route of administration that's non-habit forming, such as a capsule or a spray or a patch, and then changing the um, per- proportion of cannabinoids, THC and CBD, so that CBD becomes the predominant cannabinoid that the patient's taking. So we're working on that at the Giving Tree, and we're going to validate it at a clinic that we're calling Blue Door. It's Blue Door Therapeutics. So Blue Door is a brick-and-mortar clinic where patients will be guided through the process. And it provides a lot more than just getting patients through withdrawal because opiates do a lot more to you than just make you chemically dependent. There are problems with adrenals. um, There can be problems with sleep apnea. um, So a lot of other things need to be looked at in the clinic. But for patients who don't have access to a clinic, if they have access to the validated treatment that we can get to any dispensary in any state, then at least they can have a resource. So that's what we're working on right now is getting that kit together, if you would, Mm -hmm. and then validating it in in the clinic. Of course, there will be other services provided in the clinic, but then really being able to get that resource out into the country. Arizona is not even the worst state for opiate use. It's, It's one of them. 
but um, there are a lot of other parts in the country, and we can't open clinics fast enough, but we could um, get the get the cannabis product and the the program to other states, and so hopefully we'll have, be able to have an impact in that way. Right. And Lilac, how do you advise the people who are working within the dispensary environment on how they should how they should address patients who come in and ask questions, particularly about um, opiate use and addiction and coming off of opiates? How do you advise them? You know, um, I think we we do have a lot of patients coming in for that exact reason, which is what kind of triggered this whole thing. If patients are coming in and they say, I had a car accident five years ago and I now need to make the switch of reducing opiate use and my medication and get back to society and be able to function, Mm -hmm. what do I do? And what we have now is the data of five years of what has been helping patients. And clearly we have Gina, which we utilize a lot for that because patients have so many questions. And she also does great training with our patient consultants so that when they come, they're first of all always welcome to come. If they have a patient card, if they don't, and we offer a complimentary consulting just to talk about it, to see if they have any questions, to see if they want to explore that route, why wait till the end of the rope, why not try it in the middle, and come in, we'll sit with you one-on-one, or bring your family so we can help you. And so then they have that resource, and then we have the data of what has been helping with teacher patient consultants so then they can they can work with the patient we always say it's kind of a it's weird in a cannabis world because we do human experiments we don't uh-huh. have the, the the research out there so we do a lot of that and we tell every patient you come in we will give you the best of what we know today mm-hmm. go home try it understand that this is going to be a process if this this did not work for you come back to the giving tree and we will exchange this for you because we want to find the right medication for you. Yeah, and that, that seems to be a, a problem industry-wide that, you know, <clears throat> yes, every, and everyone reacts differently. It is. It's, it's amazing. I mean, we can have the same strain, and, you know, the four of us will, will try it, and it will affect people differently. And this right. is what they're seeing in research in Israel. I mean, the, the same strain for different strains for the same um, – cancer treatment is is reacting completely different. So there's a lot of data that needs to be collected. Um, Dr. Berman, how how much do you believe the difference between patients' uh, levels of reaction to certain dosages or strains and all of that, how much do you think that that is related to deficiencies that, different levels of deficiencies of the endocannabinoid system in these patients? I know there has been a theory thrown around about having kind of um, not enough of the not enough of the endogenous endocannabinoids, and that's why some patients seem to have uh, relief. I don't know that there's any evidence to substantiate that, but yeah. it, it would be complete guesswork at this point. I think. Yeah, like so much of this is right, but right. it it just occurred to me because um, it seems that you know a lot of they're starting to see that a lot of the autoimmune system uh, malfunctions are actually related to a deficiency um, of the endocannabinoid system and, you know, missing endogenous uh, cannabinoids, if you will. And so it's, it would be a really interesting thing to open the doors to study on that because I do hear so much that the um, interaction of 
of any cannabis medicine is different, so different in, you know, from patient to patient. So it would just be very interesting to study. But will you be also um, participating in the, in the Blue Door as well, Lila? A lot of support. <laughs> we work together. We always, you, you can find us texting each other in the middle of the night, right? It's everything we do is together. Um, I will be focusing more about the, the product that we're going to offer um, to dispensaries uh-huh. than the clinic. I think that's. Are you involved right. in cultivation as well? We do. We, we have a cultivation facility. Okay. We have an extract facility, which is our, kind of our R&D product development. This is where we're working on kind of the opiate reduction um, kit. And then we have two dispensaries. Wow. So as women in this industry, how challenging <laughs> has it been for you to really get a foothold and, and become successful? Because you are successful. I mean, there's no question from what I can see. This is a great opportunity for women. You know, this is, we are starting a new industry. There's not a lot of times in our lives in history that you can say, this is a fresh start. It's a fresh industry. Go get it. You know, there's many opportunities. You have to focus. You have to have a very clear vision of where you want to be and what you want to represent Mm because there's space for everybody, but you need to know. But I think, um, it's like any other industry, right? Women are have to work harder. It's yeah, <laughs> just the way it is. It's the way people look at us, and we have to make sure they understand that we do know what we're we're doing, and we do have a vision, and we're very clear of where we want to go, and we are going to do it on our terms and not on the other noise around us. In April, you're going to be speaking at a conference, the World Medical Marijuana Business Conference and Expo, and you will be talking about um, getting into this business. What's your biggest piece of advice? Go for it, right? I think when people ask me about how to get into this business, and I think where we were five, six years ago, it's seven now it's amazing right that there's no there's no standards of operation you can just open and be like okay this is what i'm gonna do or like you're gonna open a restaurant or you're gonna open a retail shop so we had to work very hard and the good thing is that you know we didn't have a lot of budget so we end up doing everything by ourselves which gave us the i'm a true believer if you want it and this is what you want to do just go for it yeah and there is a lot of work and there is not a lot of research out there and there's not a lot. You can always find the so many things we don't have. But th- this is an amazing industry and it's amazing to see patients come in and it's all worth it. So you just have to go for it. And you say something really interesting too and that is working, doing everything because that kind of experience really gives you such a broad overview, I would think in terms of being able to train your staff because you've been there, you've it done it. It does. It was, I mean, we had 12-hour days of trimming because who knew that you need so many hands to trim? I mean, right. I, was, I, was, I was pregnant, and it was right in the beginning, and we, we had weeks of standing there and trimming until we figured out how to do it. And, you know, you have protocols and procedures, and then Gina adding 10 more protocols of how this is going to to go the right way and how we're going to do things. So every single department, we had to actually work with our hands. But now we have an amazing experience and amazing knowledge that I don't think a lot of people 
have because they didn't have to go through what we had <laughs> yeah. to get. I remember but. when we were getting ready to package up like our first pound and we're sitting there and we have our scales and they're calibrated with their certificates and we have all our stuff and we're, <laughs> we're like, how do we know how do we know it's a package? <laughs> we had no clue. So we've learned a lot. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, back in those early days of it, it was so new to everyone. Yeah. It was you completely know. different. I mean, I have to say, in the last seven years, the change in this industry is amazing, and I can't wait to see where it's going to be in seven years. But even just the people that you know will talk to us, the the PR companies that will represent us, the the people that we can hire today. I mean, we are getting team members to to work with us that are phenomenal. They're they're brilliant. They have such an amazing background. Five years ago, they wouldn't even open, click well, see, on our job description. And now they can actually get education. Yes. You know, they can actually go, I mean, and who knows, um, every school is probably a little bit different in their in their syllabus for the for bud tending or, you know, for managing a business in, in cannabis. And But I, I can imagine 10 years ago, I mean, who had experience in selling marijuana aside from Someone who probably shouldn't have been selling right. marijuana the, on the that, street. That is the evolution of our of our industry, even just with our grow. You know, you start with growers that have been doing it either in a basement on a very small scale or people that have done it on commercial scales are not the people you want to do business with. Right. So then you, you start there and you kind of walk the, the basement into a larger scale and then you move into a larger kind of warehouse. And now we're moving into a greenhouse, which is more of the agriculture way which it is a plant we're growing a plant we're farmers let's treat it as is yeah so it's it's part of the evolution (laughs) i can imagine yeah and because it's medicine you you do have to sort of invent your own uh regulation really because especially in this state because it's not nearly as regulated what you can put into the plant as it would be say um uh, now in California, you know there will be Colorado, more... Washington. They have right. they have a much better guidelines, but that's what we follow. So you have to be a, a responsible operator, a responsible grower. You have to, you know, make your own rules in a way because it's it's what you think is right. And I think any business owner, in a way, is kind of that way. But right. but more in our industry because there's not many regulations. You so. have to definitely police yourself. Yeah, self governance. That's where integrity yes. comes in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we we recently interviewed um, someone from Focus, which is the foundation mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. cannabis standards, and you know she was saying, yeah, this has been largely a self-governed industry, but they're they're working now on getting a general consensus from those in the industry to um, formulate rules that actually will work for everyone and standards, and I think it's going to be a very necessary step. To, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, I think that from a medical standpoint, too, as a doctor, and you you get to witness the anecdotal evidence and all of that, how how motivated are you to get involved with other doctors to help them? Have you been working with other doctors as well to try to explain to them just from your own experiential point of view? I have. I love to try to educate other physicians anytime I can. It is my goal to uh, be lecturing at the Addiction Medicine Conference in 2018. And I'm hoping to have some really good data 
um, to present at that conference next year. They don't know it yet, but I'm coming. You are. Um, there are physicians in the community also that I've worked with who have been interested in, um, in cannabis and what their patients are doing. I think the really interesting thing is that the, there's really no training on cannabis except for as an illicit substance. And I use as an example, I, I recertified in emergency medicine in 2014, and then I became board certified in addiction medicine in 2015. And in each of those series of texts, because it's not just one textbook for each of those specialties, there are four pages on cannabis in each. So that really reflects the amount of education that's out there. I hope that's changing um, I think it's a little overwhelming when I speak to physicians in the community about, first of all, I'm probably a little overwhelming in myself because I'm very passionate about it. Um, and I do have a lot of knowledge that I like to, to share. So I think I kind of bowl them over a little bit. But I do love to come at physicians with statistics and with real information. And if I can't talk about a clinical study, I can, I can talk about neuropharmacology and I can talk about why it makes sense and hopefully get physicians to entertain the idea. And it's so important because as a clinician, I understand it's, it's one more thing. You have to do CME, and you have to go to your QA meetings, and you have to be on a, um, a committee, and you have to do things for your groups and things. There's a lot that's required of you, and you're like, you know, one more thing, really. But so many patients are using it. They need to know, and they mm -hmm. need to be able to have some kind of a conversation or a resource when the conversation comes up. And I use this as an example of physicians. Let's say that you're a primary care physician, and your patient becomes pregnant. Do you manage that patient? No. If you have a patient who has an opiate addiction, you need to refer them to somebody who knows what they're doing. They need to know that that resource is in the community. Or if they have a patient who's using cannabis, they need to know there are people in the community that have, I don't have all of the knowledge, but that has a base of knowledge that they can help be a bridge for that, for that clinician. Right. And I've offered so many times to, our, to my patients in the dispensary, if your physician would like for me to go to, the, to your appointment with you or be on a phone call, I'm happy to do that. So I'm always trying to make myself available to anybody who will listen, really. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's definitely correct. Yeah, but, but I know, I mean, my husband is an ER physician, and he has been referring patients to Gina. So he understands that this is what he does, and, and he doesn't have the knowledge that Gina does. So let's give her card. He carries her card for patients that he thinks have, uh, you know, pain management issues or just questions or or even even addiction. An addiction, definitely. Or, or we get patients that uh, are coming into the ER who have taken too much cannabis. And um. I get those calls, too. Or a family member who, you know, inadvertently took something. And even that knowledge for ER docs specifically is really helpful because there are things to do to help those patients out. Um, they're not really clinical Undo or involved in a textbook. <laughs> but... Um, so it's important for physicians to know there are resources in the community that can help them with their questions or if they run into an issue or if their patient is using cannabis, how can we form a partnership so that that patient gets the very best care that we can give them? Right. I think that um, the, the patients who do wind up in the emergency room with too much cannabis in their system, I think they just don't understand that it's not going to hurt them per se. But You nailed it. That is really the take-home message that I try to get. So my husband's also an ER doc. 
um, we're surrounded. We are surrounded. <laughs> and so if somebody comes in to the ER, he gets the call, and then I get the call. So that's the number one take home is this too shall pass, and you're going to be okay. <laughs> you, just, you just have to get through this. You're not going to die, um, and everything's going to be okay. It's just going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. I saw a, a whacked out uh, a report of a study that was basically citing how many emergency room visits there were. This was someone from the anti-cannabis oh, side yeah. of things, you know, citing these studies about how the emergency room uh, visits for cannabis have increased substantially, you know, since Colorado passed its law. And well, when you go from zero to four, you've increased 400%, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's but, what we're talking about. But that's about. not that's... a bad thing. And the the other side of that is that when you're talking about a patient presenting to the ER for an overdose, mm-hmm. an overdose of cannabis is very, very different from an overdose of a calcium channel blocker mm-hmm. or a beta blocker mm-hmm. or an opiate or Tylenol, mm-hmm. right? So the, the damage that's done, the morbidity and mortality from cannabis ov- overdose is, is essentially zero. Right. Because at the end of the day, that person has their normal life back. Whereas I've lost a patient to a calcium channel blocker overdose, a young and person. It, and that is devastating. terms, what is a calcium? That's a blood pressure medication. Okay. So these are blood pressure medications that people can take that will kill you. Tylenol will kill your liver. And without a liver, there's no more you, right? Yeah. So um, I was told, and I don't have the evidence to back this up, but I can look into it, but that, that Tylenol is the number one reason for uh, liver transplants in this country, Tylenol overdose. But Tylenol is in a lot of things. It's in your opiates. It's in over-the-counter medications that are mixed, cold remedies that are mixed together. Um, it's called several different things. It's called Tylenol. It's called acetaminophen. It's called APAP. So patients may not know what they're taking. They're intentional overdoses. So if you look at Tylenol versus cannabis, you're looking at morbidity, mortality-wise, to extremely, they're in different universes in terms of what ultimately happens to that patient. Wow. <laughs> I'm completely dumbfounded. I can't believe it. Tylenol. Tylenol. And then blood pressure medicine, which just seems so, you know, it, it, I, I'm completely dumbfounded. But I it, cannot, it's, if you think yeah. about, and let's think about the kids, because everybody's worried about the kids. Right. I have three myself. I'm very worried about them every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> For any reason. But if you look at a child getting into their grandparents' medication, if the child gets into a blood pressure medication, right, that is much more lethal than if a, than if a child gets into cannabis. First of all, they're probably not going to eat flour. Mm-hmm. they're probably not going to figure out how to vape children, right? Right. Um, the biggest concern is with edibles because they really do look like candy, and that requires a lot of responsibility on the part of the patient to make sure that their medications that are not clearly identifiable as medications are locked, uh, locked up. Right. Not in a bag in the back of the fridge, but locked but up. But even if a child ate an entire bottle of gummy bears that were <laughs> cannabis gummy, gummy bears, for example nothing terrible is going to happen to that child in the long run. The child will probably end up in the ICU taking a, a whole bottle of gummy bears um, in terms of just being, when, when somebody, the cannabis itself is not going to kill the child, but if they're non-responsive to the point where their gag reflex is impaired, then they can aspirate. I see. Right, yeah. and they can end up, so you have to watch them very, very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, there's the the 
saying that nobody's ever died of a cannabis overdose, but you you can't over medicate to the point where you can put yourself in danger. Right. So from relaxing those muscles that are auto muscles. Right. So the the reason that cannabis doesn't cause you to stop breathing like opiates is because there aren't receptors in the in the um, breathing centers of the brain. Okay. So. But it does relax other muscles. It can slow down your responses. So you have to be very careful with, again, with cannabis-infused products that are not clearly labeled or identifiable as medication need to be locked up. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's common sense because, I mean, even, even some of the prescription pills that you get that don't look like uh, mm-hmm. gummy bears, they come in, you know, brightly colored tablets that look like candy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, likewise, it's, it's the truth. It's the truth it's with for any, any medication. Any yeah, medic, right. treat it like any medication. Yeah, and be responsible with it. Yeah, right. Right. Wow, Tylenol. Tylenol. <laughs> I keep going back to that. That's that's pretty astonishing. I I really honestly. I'll look at the statistic I, for you. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to see that because, you know, that's another thing in this conversation about cannabis is, and 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 through this vehicle here. Um, we do speak to a lot of people who live in areas where they don't get a lot of exposure or they don't have dispensaries, even if they're in California, Nevada, where it's now going to be completely legal, they still don't have a lot of awareness and wouldn't automatically say, oh, you know, my knee hurts. Shall I go and get some cannabis someplace? Um, It's all about educating people. And part of that conversation has to be, I would think, making people understand that cannabis is really no, no more dangerous or it's probably less dangerous now that we've heard this than Tylenol. Correct. This is correct. The Safer campaign is really great. Cannabis safer than a cactus, I think I've seen. And yes. Oh, yeah, it is. Right. They, they did good. They have all yeah. this, and there are so many things that's safer than yeah. Tylenol is one of them. Well, just about everything <laughs> if, if Tylenol. Tylenol. Aspirin's the same. Yeah. That's why I hate when I see a movie and they guzzle a bottle of pills because it really, that's imagery is very, um, you know, it's very compelling. You think you can just swallow a bottle of pills. Aspirin's the same. You can die of aspirin overdose. Yeah. You bleed to death if you take too much aspirin too, yeah? Well, it causes your blood to be acidic. So. Yeah. Oh, goodness. That's just, it's phenomenal to me. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, I learned something really big here. <laughs> Take home. And it Tylenol. wasn't about cannabis. <laughs> I know. It was about Tylenol. <laughs> but, but that's what's so wonderful. It's like, you know, just every time I talk to someone new about cannabis, I learn, you know, another aspect of it that just, it, I have these wow moments all the time. And today, aside from, I mean, you said some amazing things that made me go, wow, but I, the, the Tylenol, <laughs> I don't know. That's my so, public service announcement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, the lesson in that is um, you have to be careful no matter what you're putting in your body. Absolutely. And you really have to know what it is that you're putting in your body. And you also have to know what it is that you're afraid to put in your body because chances are what you might be afraid of with cannabis has a simple explanation. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Lilac, back to you. The, in the, in the dispensary setting, um, how, how often is it that you see somebody coming in for the very first time? Oh, we, we see them daily. I mean, to 
there's the people that come first time and have some experience, but the people that come in and walk into this world and have no clue on a daily basis. And we really do try to tell as much as we can, hey, schedule time because we will sit with you one-on-one. A lot of times you want to bring your, your spouse or your, your, your kid, depends on you know the age of the patient, but make sure you take the time because it's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I mean, I think even for us, the first time we walked into a dispensary, what, what do you do and, and where to go? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we try to write notes for them. We try to write on the packaging. We try to explain as much as we can. We have a lot of, of educational materials that we give, uh, but we see them every day. And it's, it's, this is what's happening in our industry. People hear from their neighbor that it's it really helped them and people hear from their um, brother you know veteran and people hear um, read the story or they see something on Facebook and it's just it's kind of like a fire right it, it it starts spreading and people say kind of wake up and say wait yeah why not is the stigma really going to affect my life to a point that I'm so close-minded that I won't try something that might help me so we see them all the time we get calls all the time and how do I get a card? How do I get a card? How do I get a card? How do I try it? And it's kind of weird in Arizona because you have to pay so much to even come and try it. Mm-hmm. But more and more people are willing to do that because it yeah. is a better alternative. I'm really hoping that for, I, I'm hoping that in the future that insurance will start to cover um, cannabis medicine because it, it, it just seems crazy that it's not, Cover. Yeah, I know. In Israel, it is that way. Yeah. So the, the doctor was prescribed how much you should use and what strain, and and then it, it, it's covered. It's part of your, I mean, you have, you have a very small um, fee to be in the program, but it's just part of it. And doctors write the prescription, and it's right. like everything well, is completely different. Puerto Rico is going to be the, the same in terms of physician prescribing it. Really? So they won't have to, they won't have to abide by the DEA regulations for the doctors in Puerto Rico? They do, but their prescribers are physicians. And they're actually, they have a really great program. I attended it, so that's how I know. Um, they have a really great, pro- great program to educate physicians on uses, doses, routes of administration. And so they really took the time to put together a really nice program for their physicians. Right. And so their physicians have a clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's good, though. It's it's fantastic. Right. It's so fantastic. The more countries that are joining, actually, they're doing it better. Yeah, because they are doing that. Even though mm-hmm. there is a a cannabis uh, conference here in Arizona, the talks conference. That you're speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a every year the uh, uh, poison poison center puts on a conference of about cannabis, and so it's the Tucson folks and the Phoenix folks. There are two centers for the poison center in Arizona. And they put out a really nice conference about what's in research. Last year they talked about cyclical vomiting, which is really interesting, um, and pediatrics and seizures. And so they'll, they'll address a few different issues um, during that conference. And that's in March. Oh, and here in Here Phoenix? in Arizona. Yeah. Here. Mm-hmm. Oh, here in wow. That's, pretty, that's great. Mm-hmm. And then the conference that – are you speaking at any other conferences besides the one in, in Pittsburgh? I'm, I'm going to the conference in Israel, actually, Canatech, in uh, March 20th. And that's going to be that. And then Gina's going to be speaking here in Phoenix 
I'll be at the tax conference. And what is the date of that one? I believe it's March 24th. It is. And then the one in Pittsburgh is the April 21st. Yes, and 21st and 22nd. Yeah, uh, that's, that's going to be really interesting. Um, I'll be there as well. I'm very excited about that because of the CME credits that are being offered and because it is so heavily focused on the medical community, which I think a lot of... It's um, exciting. Yeah, a lot of the conferences that I've been to recently are more related to... Um, to the business side of things. And, Definitely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of what I do in the business. I do more of the business side, and Gina does more of the medical wellness side. Right. So we definitely see it, and it's, it's, there's 10 business conferences for one medical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting a signal from our producer, Wendy, that it is time <laughs> to start wrapping up. Yeah, we can talk um, about this for hours. Yep. Yeah, any, any, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I could too. I mean, I could go on and on for hours yes. and um, never get bored. But anyway, so any last thoughts? Something that you you want um, people everywhere uh, that don't know much about cannabis to know? What last thoughts, Lila? I just, I guess for me, I just want people to know that they have resources. Right, that the Giving Tree, we offer a resource for people that are thinking about it, new patients and physicians. We've got it all, and we want to offer that. We want to remove the stigma. We want to change what people think they know about this. Okay, Dr. Berman? I would just encourage people to have an open mind, and if they're to have an opinion about it, to make it an educated opinion. There's a lot of information out there um, and a lot of resources, and so... Um, to not default to stigmatizing or judging other people, but really put a little bit of time in and, and find out for yourself. Sage advice. <laughs> so, oh, I think it is time. It's time for us to wrap it up. First of all, I just want to say personally thank you to both of you. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Lilac Powers and Dr. Gina Berman. Thank you so much for sharing incredible knowledge and insights with us today. If you'd like to learn more about The Giving Tree and the work that they're doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click broadcast to find today's episode and we will post information about it with the link to their website. I also want to say thank you to Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. He'll be back again next week and um, also he's uh, going to be at the World Medical Marijuana Business Conference and Expo in Pittsburgh in April, and we'll have information about that up on our website as well. I also want to say thank you so much to our great producer, Wendy West, and the team at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine on a regular basis, and thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always where I feel 
Pure CBD is a new and unique fresh tasting spray product which delivers an exact measured amount of the highest grade 100% cannabis oil with each spray. Each tube holds a 30-day supply when used as directed. No smoke, no mess. For discreet use, Pure CBD can be used anywhere. Pure CBD from Zephyr Labs.